Welcome to It Can Be Said. My name is Will Calling. We're joined as always by the one, the only, looking at his clock, Dr. Luke Midup. How are yeah, you? Yeah, I've got to say, if you, guys, if you guys didn't live such busy and interesting lives, like, yeah, it feels very, we're doing this recording on, a, on an early Saturday afternoon, which feels like I'm preaching one of the Ten Commandments. Fairly sure that I'm not, but it might be the eleventh. <laughs> Thou, Thou shall not cover Ryan Reynolds' ass. Quite, quite. By the way, I've been. By the way, talking to Ryan Reynolds, I've been watching that uh, Wrexham documentary, and two th- two things sort of stand out. One is Ryan Reynolds and Rob was his face seem like nice guys. Two, well, actually, three things stand out. Two, the only reason they bought Wrexham was so that they could make this documentary. So I'll be very interested to see what happens when this documentary ends or when the viewing figures go down and what that does to their interest in Wrexham and football in general. And three, they do a good job of explaining why they wanted to buy a football club. But I, I'm sort of struggling with why Wrexham particularly. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. I wonder if it's just because of the Welsh angle. Like, Possibly. Like I, I, I mean, I, I've not watched it yet, but I, I'd be interested to know like if they've got any. Because I, I did a podcast for the for the Pro Wrestling Torch with a guy called David S. Moon, who's like a researcher at the University of Bath, all about Clash 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 at the Castle, uh, the WWE event, and that got Welsh government money. Like, yeah, they were a bit quiet about it, but like, it, they paid to bring WWE to Wales. So I wonder if actually the streaming service has a, a sorry the streaming series has a similar deal um, to kind of show Wales or potentially they were just like you know what, Com- no offense to Nottingham, which of course we all love yeah. having you know you're from yeah. there, I'm from yeah, nearby, yeah. we all went to university there, but like Nottingham's a bit boring, you know, <laughs> like yeah 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 yeah, it's yeah. not going to make the Americans feel wist- wistfully. In the same way, like a, a small town in Wales will. Yeah, but I mean, but I mean, not it's wouldn't a, have, would, not it's such wouldn't a tuneful people, right? the Welsh. Yeah, always got a sting in their heart. Nots wouldn't have that story, I grant you. But like Chesterfield or Stockport, you or Stockport, or <laughs> I'm just trying to think. Like Scunthorpe is a big thing. <laughs> like, yeah, they would have like they would have like pretty much the same backstory. Can you imagine trying to get the Americans to pronounce Scunthorpe? That's true. Yeah, that, I hadn't thought of that. But I mean, they must there must be tons of Chesterfields in America. Yeah, but it's probably pronounced wrong. It's, yeah, it probably is. But yeah, it's almost like they go out of their way not to explain. Why Wrexham in particular, which I find, in, like you say, I wonder whether there's, so, I wonder whether there's something going on in the background that we're not aware of. And yeah, like it's 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 a it's a, it's a decent document. It's a it's a decent bit of television, but it's very much like the well, like any of these sort of football documentaries, like the All or Nothing one on Amazon. You know, you're not get it's it's um it's not a documentary. It's an entertainment. You know, it's yeah. a product, but it has a storyline. 
But yeah. I, I think this is why the best yeah. of these documentaries are are the ones about disaster. I mean, I'm actually I, oddly, um, I'm re I'm rewatching the Sun Until I Die documentary. Oh, that, that that is fantastic! Just watching Martin Bain go slowly. <laughs> go slowly insane with the pressure of it. But the brilliant thing is that the reason reason that is so good is that they clearly got the cameras in and they got Netflix in going, because it was the season after Sunderland had been relegated, finally relegated from the Premier League after flirting with it for about 10 years. And they clearly got the cameras in going, well, this is going to be great. You know, we're going to show them, you know, the championship and we're going to show them real English football, but also real English football that we win and get promoted because, you know, Generally, the sides that get relegated from the Premier League one season are, are, are in the mix to get promoted again the next. And instead of that, it's a complete disaster. They go through several, they go through two managers, they they and they end up getting relegated to League One. I mean, spoiler alert, but this was five, four or five years ago at this point. So, you know. Yeah. But so so that and that's that, that and so she basically. Watching human hubris and human frailty is much more fun than watching human success. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love Sunderland. I love that <laughs> that first season of Sunderland to our guy is fantastic. The second season, the guys that take the club over, it is kind of like watching an episode, watching a, a series of The Apprentice. Yeah, because no, those guys are so clearly in miles over their heads, it ceases to be funny and becomes kind of tragic. <laughs> Talking of reality shows about people being in over their heads, have e- <laughs> either of you? Oh, like, that could have been oh, a segue. I know I was going to do the second. Yeah, that would have actually been a good segue to Toy Party. Yeah. But I was going to go to something else. Uh, have either of you dared watch that uh, Make Me Prime Minister show? No, no when because... I, I don't intend to, to be honest. I, 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 I'm not going to. But, like, I've started to see clips just like, um, you know, if I'm watching, like, the Andrew Neil show or on Twitter. And I thought it was just going to be, like, some cheesy, like, debate-type show. But they're actually getting them to do, like, apprentice-style challenges. And it, like, oh, it looks you're kind of horrific. making me You're kind of making me want to watch it now. Yeah, yeah, this is the thing. It's like, I'm not going to watch this. I don't want to encourage them. But this seems so terrible, it might be good. <laughs> um, if you, as a well-known uh, quizzer, Simon, and, and we all know how well quizzers do in politics, if you were invited to be our Make Me Prime Minister, what would be your answer? I mean, I, 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 just, I just got a promotion to a job in a job I actually enjoy. So uh, I could successfully go, no, that, that's fine. Thank you very much. I will leave. I mean, I think it's a really interesting, I think the only thing I haven't seen any of it either, but I have obviously seen the, um, the, the promo of it. What I find really interesting is the two sort of celebrity judges, as far as I can tell, they've got to do it are uh, Alistair Campbell and Saeed Avasi, which is, Interesting that I think our way of talking and thinking about politics really hasn't developed. I mean, Alistair Campbell's ideas were relevant in the early 2000s. Saeed Avasi in the late 2000s. And if, so, if even then, because like, she's not, she's not, she was never really a political strategist. Yeah. Um, and it, and it also, you know, neither, like, neither of them are frontline politicians. No. No. They've never, they've never won. I, I did say Devarsi ever stand for election? She certainly never no, won a seat in Parliament. No, no, I don't think so. Anyway, 
I think Campbell flirted with it at one point about potentially doing it, then decided against. But, you know, it's like, I, I find the whole rehabilitation of Alistair Campbell deeply weird because it's like, it's not, it's not that I don't think he isn't a good media presence. But, like, I, I find this, like, his desperate p- attempt to come across as a nice guy just makes him incredibly boring. Like, if he was just being Alistair Campbell, where he kind of just was mean and gave tactical advice, that would be one thing. But if Cudley <laughs> were meant to respect him because he likes the EU, Alistair Campbell, What's I just that? don't get... What? What's that really problematic episode of Friends where Chandler and Ross meet like their friends from uni? They'll become like incredibly boring. Oh, um, they don't meet him, but yeah, like he, he's uh, Ganondorf, <laughs> Ganondorf, whatever his name is. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's yeah, it's just like, and it's like you say, Simon, like, and like the thing is, the thing with Campbell as well is he was never a political strategist. Like, like, this is what people always get wrong with him, isn't it? Like, he was a guy about handling the media. You know, everything else was given to Mandelson or Gould or, you know, dare we say it, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown had some of their Everybody own... Everybody always forgets Jonathan Powell as well. Yeah, but, I, like, the way I always understand it is he's much more as they get come into government and how they're going to run government... Because he was still a civil servant for most of Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um but you know, be all, and like Sally Hunter as well, like you know, actually being effect an effective government is part of the You mean Angie Hunter Hunter. As Angie Hunter is now a colleague of mine, let's at least get her name right. Um <laughs> and, yeah, and a thoroughly nice person. I I, I I will I will say that much. I remember I very vividly remember I was really I was I was I was on a bus going from work to some inevitably a quiz. Let's be honest with ourselves, um, uh, and I happened to be rereading. Things can only get better because it's it's a delight. Um, and um, oh, starting to feel like nineteen ninety seven again. Yeah. Everywhere you go, <laughs> uh, and, and I was just reading it. And Angie just Angie happened to be on the same bus and tapped me on the shoulder, and had, we had like a five minute conversation. It was always that there was our thing like. Yeah, but you're but you but, but you you you're in the book. <laughs> but also, like, how do you know? It's always, I'm always, but I know it's because we're colleagues, and also I'm quite distinctive in the way I walk, so people do know who I am. But it always baffles me that people, you know, it's like you're really important. Why do you know who I am? But yeah, gen- genuinely, I really like. I've genuinely been a really is a really sort of, and really good at trying to you know get you know is really good at offering mentoring and things. Anyway, I'll stop just being nice about Angie Hunter. That isn't helpful to anyone. Okay, this one. For a show none of us are going to watch, if you had to pick two politicians, and you've got, you've got to balance them, there's going to be one Tory, one Labour, who would you pick to be the politicians being the celebrity oh, judges? Oh, that's a good question. Okay, I, I, I think I've got it already. I Go think on. Peter Mandelson, Ruth Davidson. Oh, that's... that's- that, that that is that is a pair that is, those are a pair those are a pair of excellent choices. I I, I choices because you know cause you know what's good about those two. If you squint, they could be the new hosts of Bake Off. That and that I would watch. Peter Anderson, <laughs> Ruth Davidson hosting Bake Off. That is a program I would enjoy. <laughs> I'm not convinced anyone else would, but I'd have a lovely like, time. I'm like, 
I don't know, but like Ruth Davidson already has a media career, so yes. actually that's not that far fetched. A technical, um, and, technical and, and challenge know, based on guacamole. And you, you know that Peter, but I'm not, not so much sure about Bake Off, but you know in the Make Me Prime Minister, like Peter Mandelson would just love playing up to the cameras and his reputation. Yes. Oh, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, that's the idea, you know, you have Ruth Davidson kind of doing her avuncular mumsy act. Um, and and you have Peter Mandelson just you know being like a villain from like nineties British reality shows. <laughs> he would love it. Yeah, he would. Uh, yeah, you know what? I don't think there's a better answer than that. <laughs> anyway, so go go on, Simon. I mean, it has. It still has the problem of feeling a bit out of date of the society we actually live in now. Yes, but, but it's the, a lot. But the. But the but the thing is, it's always going to because you'd have to, it has to be two politicians in retirement. Yes. Yeah. And, I, and Davidson is more yeah. contemporary than than yeah. Uh, yeah. these these guys. I mean, she really should be still be a frontline politician. It's just yeah, it was. I, I think yeah. I think I think the more and more I think of it, I do like I thought it was a bit it was a bit sus for her to quit like she did. But I think she saw where the Tory party was going. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but yes, but uh, yes, you have had some good news uh, this week, Simon. So from yeah. one from one new strategist to a party that desperately needs a new strategist. Hey, how goes how goes your party's conference, Luke? Oh, she. I haven't been a car carrying Tory in like seven or eight years. I mean, I accept that I'm probably the closest you get on this podcast, but they're hardly my party. Uh, are, you, are you thinking about voting Labour? Mm, no, but I'm just glad I live in a constituency where that isn't a consideration, to be honest. <laughs> uh, yeah, that conference was really bad. I mean, really, really bad. Um, obviously, I didn't watch much of it because I'm 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 interested in politics, but I'm not weird. Um, you always get that line wrong. I know. Well, whatever it is, you know what? What what is it then? Well, I, I, I'm not. I, I said I was interested, not obsessed. Fine, that. <laughs> um, but yeah, there seem to be all sorts of weird, um, you know, plots against Liz Truss um, circulating, which is bizarre given she's not given she's barely been in office a month. <laughs> um, um, like, literally, not, we should say, like, literally a month. Like, literally tu- a month. Tu- Tuesday of conference was her month anniversary. Yeah, I mean, she, she, she gave a leader speech that was, that was 25 minutes long. I've had sandwiches that lasted longer than that speech. <laughs> Simon. Well, yeah, I mean, here we, we're, we're, we're t- talking on the 8th of October, so we're talking a month after the death. Of the, the Queen has been dead dead a month. So, yeah. yeah. And, it's, you know, that weird week, you know. Yeah, it's it's just, I mean, the, the actually, before we talk about, the, go through, like, the conference blow by blow, we, sh- we should have worked leader speech, which I haven't watched, because um, I've been busy. But the... The interesting thing, there's two things. One, how short it was. That's fine. No, she's not a great speaker. So, you know, good speakers struggle to make interesting 60-minute speeches. And by struggle, I mean always fail. 
So why make a bad speaker go out and talk for a long time? Um, doesn't really make any sense. Um, I like, I, 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 you can t- clearly tell like the stuffing has been knocked out of Truss and and Quatang because they both made very banal short speeches. Clearly, clearly, basically having nothing to say. Um, and I, I can talk about quasi speech because I did actually watch that uh, later. But the the really interesting, like there, there is this thing of it's always worth looking at the nuts and bolts of um, how parties are organised because if they get the, the simple things wrong that you can see they're probably getting the, the big difficult things wrong that you can't see and one of the really boneheaded things that the toy party did is not moving a speech to Tuesday because one of the because I, 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 I knew some people who are going to, to toy party conference both of them, uh, one of them, I mean, our friend Hamish, he left on Tuesday because of the rail strikes. And quite a lot of the journalists and quite a lot of the MPs were also leaving on Tuesday to beat the rail strikes. And like that was kind of like obvious. Like it was obvious that people weren't going to spend another night in Birmingham, risk absolute nightmares trying to get back just to listen to this talk for 20 minutes on Wednesday morning. That 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 they should have called the audible and moved her up to Tuesday. I mean, you'd have to, you would have had to have announced it the week of the conference to stop the RMT just moving their strike. But like, to me, it was just a clear, clear-headed. You know, you have a speak at you know four, four, five o'clock on Tuesday. You know, send out the B string on Wednesday when most people have gone home. We probably won't know this for a while, but you know what it kind of reminds you know what it kind of reminds me of. It reminds me of the, the sort of the period in two thousand and seven when it all fell apart for Gordon Brown, and like you you read like the accounts at that time, and one of the reasons why it did all fall apart was that like number ten, number ten, the political you know the political part of number ten was just drastically underpowered. There were far too few people trying to do far too much work. Um, the, you know, there just weren't enough bodies to throw at problems. And I, I really do get that impression. I really do get that impression with trust as well, because you like read stuff that's going on around it. It's always the same. It's always the same three, four people that are like that are like acting as outriders for Downing Street. It's always the same three or four people that are mentioned in articles or are briefed in the press. It, it just feels like a very underpowered uh, Downing Street. Now, I don't, I don't want to go like the full David Frost and go, every, you know, all the ideas are fantastic. You just need a better operation because the ideas are rubbish. And <laughs> no political operation in history is going to be able to sell them. But it does feel like a, a confluence of bad policy and not in, and not enough people. The, um, I'm going to take a victory lap and then doff my hat to Simon because I think I've been vindicated on something uh, that I said uh, last week. And Simon's been vindicated on something he said that I disagreed with. So obviously I'm going to do the victory lap first. 
And hopefully somebody will have to will interrupt me before I get on to uh, uh, saying Simon was right. Um, but like, I think part of what's made it worse is she's got a very weak chief whip and a... Who is, who is the chief whip? Oh, you know what? I've completely blanked on her name, but like everyone's saying she's crap. Okay. Uh, and, and obviously she's got a leader of the house who's hostile, neutral, chaotic neutral. I don't know what you how you describe Penny Mordaunt's uh, kind of relationship with Liz Trust, but she's not part of the team. And so, like, stuff the whip's office <clears throat> or the leader of, leader of the house should be doing is falling on number 10. <clears throat> and then you've got the fact that a lot, a lot of what number 10 is actually doing is supporting the, the number 11 team because you, it's not just number 10 has no stuff. You've got to remember, the Treasury does not have a permanent secretary. What I didn't realise is it doesn't even have a deputy permanent secretary. Like the Treasury really is like flying blind. And you have the issue of a lot of ministers still don't have PPSs. They are still announcing PPSs during party conference. Like this has blown apart Corbyn's records for longest reshuffles. Um, I know that's not entirely their fault, but Jesus Christ. Wendy um, Morton, Wendy <coughs> Morton, by the way. Penny, Penny Norton. That, that's just confusing. No, yeah. Wendy Morton is the uh, Wendy, chief. Wendy Morton. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there's that. So, again, should have probably needed a better chief whip. No, no, did need a better chief whip. Should have had a loyalist as um, a leader of the house. Should have had somebody more. Im- the other thing as well is should have had some more impressive as party chairman. That Jake Berry just looks like a complete idiot and sounds like a complete idiot and probably thinks like a complete idiot too. Like, never. No, there's not many MPs that come across less impressive than him. Uh, and that's, that, that's weird because. You know, he, he, he was heavily involved in the election campaigns of 2015 and 2019. As like, a, you know, as he was an MP and a candidate, obviously, but he seems to have had like a role, uh, particularly in the like running the, the Tory campaign in the in Northwest England in both of those general elections. It's you know being able to uh, think and talk on TV at the same time. Yeah, that that's what. Yeah, I think this is probably the thing. He's probably he probably comes across better off camera. But yeah, he said some really weird shit. <laughs> the um the thing the thing um the thing about um uh, where Simon was right is you read. I think I was reading the Times today. Trees of coffees getting massively overstretched. To, to your point, Luke, like basically because everybody that should be helping this trust from a political level is either crap or not on her side. Trees of coffee is being asked to do all these kind of firefighting jobs, whilst also trying to earn the NHS the ultimate firefighting job. So. Yeah, Simon was probably right that it was a mistake to uh, give give to give what the person who should be like your enforcer, the Department of Health job as well. It is probably too much for one person to handle. Yeah, yeah. What do you think, Simon? And I, I think sorry, I sorry. think 
I think Sorry. I'm right. Uh, no. <laughs> Sorry, could I just cut in there a second? I w did watch a bit of Therese Coffey's speech, and just to that point, Will, she, she really does look like she needs a glass of wine and a lie down. She looks <laughs> really tired. <laughs> Which is concerning that, like, because, like, this, again, they, this is a month in, and okay, and, and, and 10 days of that month, Nothing happened. <laughs> like, particularly, I, I get that Liz Truss might have been a bit stressed out by it because, um, you know, to, to, you know, any any situation in which a major public figure dies two days after you've met them is going to be stressful. You've got to deliver haltingly and badly. You know, the biggest, the in terms of audience, the biggest speech she will ever make, which is uh, reading the lesson at the Queen's funeral. Like, she's never going to do a bigger one than that. Um, but. Therese Coffey hasn't been in, she might have gone to the funeral, I don't know, but she's, you know, what what has she been doing that's so stressful? Well, can I just say one thing as well? <clears throat> I think Listras could have said no to doing some of that stuff and actually prepare for the end of mourning. Like, there was no obligation for her to go to the uh, services in Northern Ireland Oh, I, 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 I think that I think that's probably wiser after. I think that's wiser after. <laughs> no, because you, you, no, you remember that it, it was actually quite it, when it was initially announced. They got pushback, and they had to clarify her role. Um, okay. People, people thought like she was trying to politicize the tour, and I actually remember looking into it. Because like these coronation tours are something they do after you know when the monarch comes, and it's not usually the prime minister that accompanies. It's usually the relevant secretary of state, so like secretary of state for Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. <clears throat> so her insisting on going was weird, which is why she plays such a small, basically non-existent part. Um, and like, look, you know that's days out of her diary where you know she could have she could have been preparing stuff likewise i mean i've said this just as an ideological point of view but you know you're not the world's greatest speaker just get the speaker of the house of commons to read the lesson at the funeral like i think it makes a nice non-partisan point to to have them to do it and it spares you a job um, you know, this is where, you know, this, this is the thing with the Prime Minister, isn't it? Like, the, the, the unique thing about the Prime Minister is, there's you no, know, this is a yes minister line, there's a lot of things you could do, and there's a lot of things you should do, but there's nothing you have to do. After all, you're the boss. And I think this is one of the things uh, with Liz Truss, I, 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 I sometimes get the sense she hasn't quite got her head around that that she gets to decide what she does and doesn't do. But yeah, but like she added stuff onto her plate that week that she didn't have to do and she probably could have used the time better. better, Or worse, actually. <laughs> I mean, it's one of these things that when you've got somebody incompetent, incompetent, you do kind of want to keep them active with busy work because <laughs> if they're in the office, they could do some real damage. <laughs> this is the thing. I mean, we, we, we said last week, you know, everyone was very worried that Liz Trust wasn't saying anything. That was, that was causing disharmony in the markets. And then she started talking and it got worse. So she's just very bad. I mean, 
we should talk about some of the very bad things I've done this week. So, hang on, but just before we do that, Will, you were saying on Twitter that like you've been following politics for thirty years, and you've never like you've never had as visceral, visceral a reaction to a government as this one. Yeah, well, yeah, no, I think I went, I went further. Than, I, I think I hate this government more than the previous governments combined. By the way, very hard to work out how many governments you followed. Like, like, did, did, okay, here's one. Did Blair have one? Is Does Blair count as one government or three governments? Three. See, I think it's, I think it's, the, this is interesting because I think it's one because I think it's, there was enough consistency in mission. Like, Oddly, I almost there are certain government. I mean, I almost think Boris Johnson had more governments than Tony Blair because Boris Johnson's governments were fundamentally felt fundamentally different. Whereas Blair, there was a real consistent thread through that decade. So, I, like, I think this is a thing. You're both right, which means you can't really put a number on that makes sense to anybody because Luke is right constitutionally. Mm-hmm. After each election, the the prime minister is formed is invited to form a new government by the monarch, so it would be free. And I think that's what most the Wikipedia does, like the first Blair government. Yeah, it, first, it does. Yes, first second. But like anybody would think you were very peculiar if you said like if I was to turn around because I, I did count it. So I, I followed one major government, three Blair governments, four Browns, five Cameron would be two, so that's seven. May would be two, so that's nine, and Johnson would be two, so that's 11. So this would be the 12th government. But if I was to turn around and put on Twitter, I follow 12 governments, I think most people would think I'd, I'd, I'd been following politics from like the 70s or 60s. So I think I think we have moved to the government. No, we, we, rather than governments, we think more as premierships. <laughs> Um, which is why I, so I think legally Simon's right. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, I just don't like the incompetence is really annoying because I think I think already it is clearly the most incompetent government. Johnson's was the most venal. Um, but like it, it did get some stuff done um, and it no, it. it it was somewhat popular um, when it put its mind to it. Um, whereas this one is just so incompetent. It clearly hates this country in a really weird way. And so it's like, you know, I'm not I'm not an environmentalist. Like this whole stuff over, they're going to stop the king going to uh, COP27 in Egypt, which is like really fucking rude considering we're the handover to the Egyptians. Like that's a real slight to them and and the UN, and that is gonna, that is going to come back and bite us. Um, so like, like, got- what, like, why do I can't even? What's the? I can't even work out what the logic of that is. Because because they're high on their own supply when it comes to we love fracking, we love concreting over nature reserves. It's just like. You're the fucking conservative party. Yeah, I mean, oh, so the, the, this is this is the thing. This is why you keep going. It how's your party conference going? This is why I keep pushing back on this in a way I wouldn't if it was if it had been Boris Johnson. I don't recognise this conservative. I don't recognise this conservative party. 
Because it doesn't exist. I mean, this is yeah. thing, isn't it? It's, it's a figment of Lichtenstein's imagination. And I think, to be fair, like, because we, 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 were, we were talking about this offline, weren't we? Like, let, let, let's be honest. If this, if this government was, a, was, was competent, I still wouldn't like it. It might be less annoying and aggravating. But, like, this is a government that's probably the most ideologically distance, uh, distant from me. Um, in my lifetime, uh, you know, because, you know, well, I've been all over the place in terms of my politics, but a through line probably is, you no, know, is, is quite, is relative, being relatively big state, pro-authority, man in white hall knows best, and libertarianism is just the thing I have the most content for in, uh, in politics. Um, but like, I, like, I can feel it on my Twitter feed where normally I am, um, a fairly level-headed, positive, you know, both sidesy type account, and I I think the past two weeks in particular, I, I has been the most relentlessly negative I've ever been towards a government on Twitter since I've joined. And I look, it's not as if I liked Cameron Osborne because I think that they were the ones I thought were the worst government of my lifetime before this lot. Um. But uh, yeah, I, I I really hate this government in so many ways. It's really exciting to see which is going to be the government that beats this one. Because this is the thing, I have absolute certainty that there will be a worse government than this one that will come along. And... <laughs> I mean, this is so... This is such a black sword event. I mean, like you look at the poll ratings <laughs> and how viciously and suddenly they're, sw- they're swung. You look at the you look at the polling for this parliament as a whole. It looks so weird. Well, it does, it does. But uh, even with the kind of gyrations of polling, we've not seen anything like this ever. And we've not like the way Liz Truss's personal ratings have imploded in a month. Well, listen, we keep saying in a month. The way they've imploded in two weeks. It like it really is unprecedented. Like, I mean, maybe if we had more polling during Suez, we'd have seen similar things, but you didn't get this detailed polling. In the period of time we've had polling like this, we've never seen anything like this. So I think I think this is like a once in a lifetime thing. I don't think you'll get a government that fucks up this badly. And yeah. I think I think it will be one of these ones where it's like, whoa. That was so, weird. So speaking of a once in a lifetime event, um, you get you seem to be getting a lot of comparisons on Twitter with what happened to the Canadian Tories in 1993. Yes. And as our resident Canada expert, Simon, can you explain what happened to the Canadian Tories in 1993? If you remember, because like you did have that yeah. thing in the head that made you forget. Yeah. No, I, well, no, what happened was that Stephen Bush talked about people being 1993, and I, I just wasn't entirely fixed into it and you know as it is one of my favorite stories it was quite ironic so brian moroni who was the long-serving you know sort of canadian um prime minister in the, in the 1980s is it, is it there was this sort of in can in can it, for canadian political commentators they like to go it's thatcher it's reagan it's mulroney but for the rest of the world it was thatcher and reagan and mulroney occasionally turned up because it's canada so who cares I love Canada and deep, I love Canada. I think it's a wonderful country, but 
guys, you're you're not you're not at the top table. I know you're in the G8, but that was basically an error. Um, so Bromaroni is a very successful Canadian Prime Minister. You know, big majority. I think wins a big majority. I think in 1984 holds on to you know runs a full term. Then in 1993 decides that he's going to step down. Um, I, I can't remember quite why. You know, I, I think he was just retiring, to be honest. Um, and so, but he, but he does something really interesting. It's, it's really interesting because it's what Tony Blair initially claimed he was going to do in the UK, which is he ran his entire term to the extent that the woman who took over from him, uh, a woman called Kim Campbell. Um, Lit- literally never spoke in the House of Commons as Prime Minister because they he announced he was going, Kim Campbell was appointed, and immediately there was a general election. Like, there was no gap there at all. So she never got a bedding in period. She never got a moment to do, like, being Prime Minister of Canada, going, you know. Do, do you remember what this was called when Blair pitched he was going to do this? That, that There was a name that this, this gambit was called. No, I, I didn't know because I don't spend that much time thinking about Tony Blair and things it, that didn't happen to him. It, it was going to be... It, it, um, people were calling him he was going to try and Asnar it because in Spain, Asnar, who was, I think, the Tory leader, like the Conservative yeah. leader, yeah, 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 yeah. He, he did the same thing. He served out... But he actually served out his entire term, stayed on as a caretaker, and then uh, the Conservatives probably lost that election. Um, as as the Christian Democrats did when Angela Merkel did the same thing. Basically, there is some strength to incumbency. If you're going to step down, you really do need to step down in advance of the election to give your successor some chance to make a name for themselves. And hopefully so, they, make, they make a better name for themselves than this trust has. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, so going back to Kim Campbell. Yes, so Kim Campbell becomes... Did, did, did he open a baton for Australia, by the way? Um, pos- pro- there probably was an Australian called Kim Campbell, but so um, she was the first woman. She'd been Minister of Justice. She was the first woman to serve as Canadian Prime Minister. Still at this point, the only woman to have served as Canadian Prime Minister. And she, they ran a campaign. And whereas um, the sort of Mulroney coalition had been, you know, pretty broad, it had been pretty successful. By 1993, it was split. In three, it was split three ways. You had people who were going to stick with what were called the progressive conservatives. You had people out in the west of Canada, so Saskatchewan, Alberta, um, which has always been a have always been a sort of the closest bits to kind of Republican America that Canada has. It's sort of there's oil out there. There's a sort of free spirit thing. A new party called the Reform Party under a guy called Preston Manning arrived, which meant that people who had just voted progressive conservative in these provinces went, actually, let's give this new party a go. And in Quebec, which um, had had in 1980, had had a... um, had had a federal had had a vote on independence, so we're, we're a very similar situation to Scotland. Although Quebec is a much more significant proportion of the Canadian population than Scotland is to the UK, I think Scotland is about one in twelve British people live there, and Quebec is probably a, well, I think it's the largest province by area and second largest province by population after Ontario. Is it the richest um, one as well? 
Um, I, I don't know. I mean, again, I think it's, it's either going to be Quebec or Ontario, you know, because you've got the second biggest city in the country in Montreal there. And um, so it's, it's a much, it's a bigger deal in some respects. Um, also, the other weird thing about Quebec, this is sorry, Quebecois independence, was like, say what you will about Scottish independence. If Scotland went independent, you're basically just cutting the top bit of Britain off. Whereas Quebec, because of where Quebec is, um, what's the word um geographically you would basically have an in you basically have canada split between the bulk of the country ontario and the west and all that and then atlantic canada so nova scotia newfoundland and things would basically be a would it would, would be doing almost an east pakistan you know it would be the same country but well you know it's really interesting because newfoundland had to be really bullied is it, it was Newfoundland. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, Newfoundland. Yeah, it was the set, yeah, it was the set it to be re- the British Empire. And it had to be really bullied into joining Canada because it, it really didn't want to. But like basically we couldn't afford to kind of pop it up anymore. And for some reason we didn't want it to go to the Americans. Because I think they were like interested in going to America at one point. Yeah, it was very weird, like coda to like uh british imperialism in north america in the in the in the, in the 40s and 50s yeah but uh, it, it, so that would be that i mean that would have been that would one of the things i mean there is still a, a quebecois separatist movement now although um but anyway the um and then on the and then in in canada there was a new sort of pro-independence party in quebec called um the bloc quebecois uh, which is still the main separatist party in can in, in in that so again and they were taking a lot of they to take take they could take a lot of votes in Quebec which has a lot, plenty of seats from from the Conservatives as well because there's you know there's, there's distinct crossover anyway so then the campaign is they are set up to like do like to likely do badly because it's it's not you know because there are but there's a realignment going on but the campaign itself is absolutely is 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 pretty terrible and Campbell is not is a pretty uninspiring figure and in the most sort of controversial moment um the leader of the opposition uh which in Canada is a liberal party there's a center they're kind of centrists really uh who is a guy called Jean Chrétien um who he has a sort of facial palsy um and they ran an advert basically with shots of kind of with stills and images of his of his face sort of like contorted by this palsy, basically going, is this a guy you can trust? Basically going, look, someone who's someone who has a disability isn't the kind of person you want leading a major country. Um, and this whole but this is a this is a backlash. And obviously, we don't know how connected it was with the central authority, although you know, probably more than they claimed. So you get to election night. So they, they went into this election with 156 seats. Um, and in the Canadian system at that point, you needed 148 for a majority. So that's 290. It's about 300 seats in the Canadian Parliament at this point. I think it's just a few more now. Um, and so they went into this election with 156 seats. They had 169 seats at the you know, previous election, um, they of those 156 seats, they lost 154 of them, including the leader um, who lost her seat in Vancouver. Um, like everywhere, 
lost seats. So um, the Liberals nearly doubled their representation. They went from, oh no, they more than doubled their representation. They went from 81 to 177. This new bloc Québécois, that's the really, so that what's really interesting about the total collapse of this governing party, because obviously in most elections, you know, government loses, becomes the main opposition party and so on and so forth. The total collapse, because two seats, obviously, they were not the main opposition. Um, the main opposition become this separatist party, the Bloc Québécois. So the main opposition is from one province. Represented. It is as if the Conservatives imploded to the extent the SNP became the second largest party in Parliament, which is extremely unlikely. But there, there have been, weirdly, a couple of like people have played electric characters. There are a couple of ways in which that could happen. I mean, it would, it would, I think, lead to it. It would, it would mean the Lib Dems had done particularly badly. And what that then, that then uh, precipitates a very close, um, I think it ends up at 50.5 and 49.5, a referendum, another referendum on Quebecois sovereignty, which is a really interesting story. It involves a man, it involves the leader of the Bloc Quebecois in Parliament losing his leg. That's not connected, but it does happen during this campaign. It's an incredible. Um, and and it, I mean, it doesn't, this doesn't last. What basically happens is the Reform Party and the Progressive Conservatives go, lads, we basically agree, like, we basically agree with each other. They form the net, they form into a new sort of conservative alliance. And then in 2006, uh, Stephen Harper comes into power, big, you know, sweeps aside the Liberals. But they have, you know, 13 years of government where they're basically not really opposed by anyone. Um, and it, it sort of, and it, but it is, that's when people talk about comparing where Liz Truss and the Conservatives are now to 1993. That's what they're talking about. They're not talking about even 1997, where, uh, yes, it was obviously a terrible result for the Conservatives, but they ended up in, because they were obviously the leading opposition party. They obviously, you know, were in the, they were obviously able to present themselves at the next election as the alternative government and all of that. In the 1993 scenario, the party died. Like it, it's gone. It never came back, and and they were left in a position where they could not legit. They they basically didn't have in Canada. You have to have a certain number of MPs to have basically official party status, which I think is basically to do with money. And they didn't have enough seats. They went from being the governing party at the end of a of a sort of uh, squatting over to use Tim Shipman's term. The Canadian political model to not having enough money to be regarded as an official party by the Canadian state, and I don't, I still don't believe that's where Liz Truss and the Conservatives are. But it's also not totally outside of the realms of possibility. I think the difference would be um, is is I think what you said, like the party split. So and like the weirdness with Canada is is is. The, the way federalism intersects with its politics because Canada has this odd model which I think is pretty unique where the provincial parties are separate and different to the federal parties um, so each province has its own unique politics with different parties, now the parties may be affiliated to federal parties but they are distinct and my understanding is basically what happened with, because like the traditional party of government in Canada is a Liberal Party. Um, that was that was true before the eighties, or true after the eighties. This was kind of like a weird period of Conservative governance, 
Um, and what happened was is that the Conservatives had kind of... Basically, Western Canada got fed up with all the compromises being made to Quebec. And there was this ideological dimension to the split. But there was also just a Western Canada's really fed up of the Quislings, uh, you know, Red Tories um, being too kind to Quebec. And what's really interesting is that that tension, that East-West tension in Canada is also down the left because the NDP, by all accounts, the NDP should have disappeared long ago because it it is clearly just they're not doing particularly well doesn't really have a shot at being in government will occasionally split the fo- uh, split the the anti the anti-conservative vote uh at, to the detriment of the liberals but it kind of does ex- it, it survives because there are basically just people ironically in the very conservative parts of Canada who will not vote liberal they would rather vote for a more left-wing party <laughs> than the liberal party and you actually see it in 93, where the NDP actually does very badly because there is this reform party that, you know, kind of isn't 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 either of the more Eastern parties that people can vote for. Um, and, and that appeals to, again, like you're saying, like Alberta, Shoshoskin, you know, et cetera. The, 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 the thing, you when you look at the 93 results... Combined reform and the progressive conservatives do fine. Like they, ba- it's basically a normal defeat for conservatism. You know, they together they get roughly thirty-two percent. It's just they're divided between two parties, which is why, as soon as they agree to merge, you no, know, they're they're kind of back in a strong position. The thing that is really remarkable now is. You are getting polling where the right-left divide in British politics is something like, depending on how you count it, 60-30, 65-25. Like, this, this is Armageddon in terms of the right-left divide in British politics. You know, when you think about how our polls are done now, this, this is probably worse uh, for the right and centre right, than the polls in the mid nineties were at Blair's peak, um, because it should be more difficult to get big leads now. Um, it is more difficult to get big big leads now. So there's been this huge shift away from conservatism, but away from the right, which has been building. I mean, it has been building. I mean, this is a point Sam Friedman's been making on Twitter. For the past year, if you add up Labour, Lib Dem, Nationalists, they've actually that combined. I'm sorry, and Greens. That combined vote has actually been at quite high levels for a while, and the question has been is whether they can efficiently organise. What's now happened is it's got even bigger, and it does seem like you are having some people from the Greens and the Lib Dems, and to a lesser extent, the Nationalists going. You know, fuck it, we can't risk raising a vote. We've got to get these out of here and they're going towards Labour. So, yeah, like, I, I don't know. Like, 
look, if if you were to get a, an election where you actually had something as crazy as 45% to Labour, 25% for the Tories, um, the Lib Dems on 8%, the SNP still winning most of the seats in Scotland, no, winning almost all the seats in Scotland. You know, like the Tories getting below 120, 100 is not out of the realms of possibility because that is such a gargantuan lead. And Labour's vote would be more efficiently distributed in England than it would have been back in, even in 1997. Um, yeah, it could be a completely apocalyptic. What do you think, Luke? Well, the, the one, I mean, I agree with all of that. And I think you've made this point offline. And I think it's important, you know, doing like my football corner bit. If Labour is doing that well, I find it very difficult to see that scenario happening where the SNP still hold like 45 to 50 seats in Scotland. Because I think a lot of soft Nats and a lot of soft unionists actually quite like the idea of a centre-left government in Westminster. Um, and, you know, the, the, a, a large part of the SNP's success has been based around the idea that we're this cuddly social democratic party that will stand up to the Tories. If you've actually got the, the possibility of a social democratic government in Westminster, I'm not saying the SNP wouldn't still be the largest party in Scotland, but I could easily see a scenario where they're on sort of 30 to 35 seats rather than 45 to 50 seats. Yeah, I mean, the polling isn't showing that yet. The polling has shown it's soft unionists going to Labour and... But the, 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 thing is, I always, the thing is, I always sort of I always sort of discount any Scottish polling that's not done during an election. And the reason for that is because the way because the way the Scottish um, executive Scottish government is structured, it can do much more by executive action yeah. than the UK government can. And one of the consequences of that is that's not true. Out, pardon. No, the, the British government has much more power. The the, the SNP is much more limited. It's it's more do mean, limited. Do you, do you mean more in Scotland? Yeah, I mean more in Scotland. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when you are outside an election window where, you know, impartiality rules kick in, it's so easy for the SNP to completely dominate news cycle in a way that I don't think any party in England and Wales can. Um, and it, this, is, this, is not, this is not me making stuff up. You look at any Scottish polling done during an election campaign, the SNP are always, by the end of that campaign, three, four points down on average from where they start. Just because, simply because the other parties get more of a hit, you know, are mandated to get more of a hero. I think, I, I, I think the one thing to say, so there's another poll that just came out um, an hour ago. Now, the S&P on 45, which is basically the same. Labour up 9 on 31%. Tories down 7 on 12 so to put that To put that in com comparison, they got about a fifth of the vote, of the vote in 97. 
Yeah, they were on about they were on about fifteen percent, I think, in ninety seven. Um, I think I think it was a bit more because Dead Nadir came in two thousand and one by share of the vote, okay. like, even though they gained a seat. But like, yeah, they they are they are on course to do quite a bit worse than they did in ninety seven in Scotland. Yeah, the Dems on seven. I mean, I don't know why Bob have asking about the Greens um, in Westminster voting intention because they yeah, they but they basically don't stand. Um, so yeah, so like, yeah, it's it's bad. It's, it's bad. bad. It's really bad. bad. And there are there are like there are comparable polls in Wales as well. And that is a big deal because, like, the Tories, the, the Tories don't have the like, Tories have more seats in Wales. I think Tories have more seats in Wales than they do in Scotland, and they, and they do have winnable marginals. If they were doing well, they could actually challenge for as well. So them going backwards in Wales, and like, and they will all I go think, to I Labour. Think the, the, the Welsh poll I saw had them had the Tories holding. Two seats in Wales, basically because the Lib Dems don't, aren't a thing in Wales anymore. No, like I think they think they're somewhat competitive in Cardiff, and that's it. Yeah, they probably if if the Tories did really badly, they'd probably retake Brecon and Radnorshire. But yeah, so like the Tories, yeah, I mean, the even, Tories even have. Sorry, sorry, guys. Time. Put this in context. Yeah, the Tories have fourteen seats in Wales at the moment. Yeah. But that's the level of... I mean, this has always been the problem in the Tories. Like, those 14 seats, the six they have in Scotland, that's 20. I think they have about 25 in London, in Greater London. Yeah, something like that. The latest, I mean, the latest, in the latest poll I've seen is that there is one that says they'd lose all of them, including Orpington. So here's the thing, right, guys. Just Scotland, Wales, London, that's, that's the majority. That's the majority got... And this has always been the thing with the Tory party. It's like, it's all very well talking about the Red Wall and how you hate everybody that isn't... isn't I don't know who the Tory party doesn't hate at the moment. Yeah. But, like, hating those of us who don't, you know, live in, in the figment of the imagination that is Liz Truss's uh, zealotry. Um, well, your majority relies on us, you know. It relies on people, you know... In London, in Wales, in Scotland, you can't actually just tell most of the country to go hang. You won't win that. This is always like I, I am not David Cameron's biggest fan. Um, uh, a because I don't, I'm not. I don't think he was a particularly good prime minister. B because Luke's here. Um, but <laughs> one of the things he was right is parties don't win elections if they give off the impression they hate the country they're trying to lead, people mm. people don't like that. People don't want to be led by a group of politicians who go around telling them they're bad. Um, and this is what we have for this government. And again, just to finish, to finish what I was just making a bit earlier, there's been this clear move to the left, both in opinion polling, in the electoral, the, oh, what's it called? The attitude survey that's done every year. Like, you can see this drift to the left. And the Tory party, in its infinite wisdom, has given us maybe our most right-wing government ever. It's certainly, like, relative to, relative to where the country is. I, I think you'd struggle to have a more right-wing government maybe since 
Baldwin's first government, the one that got quickly turfed out. You know, it's a really, really right wing government, and it's I mean, not what the people. Yeah. It's not where the people are. I mean, to to be honest, calling it a right wing government, I think, gives it more credit than it deserves because it gives it an a level of ideological coherence that it just does not have. Okay, we, we, we should we should talk about. Do we have any final thoughts on polling um, uh, before we move on to the actual what happened at the actual conference? It's very no. fun, and if you would like, if I I, I find looking at the the, the, the Britain elects maps, the new statesman does, which has, I mean, the result, the one that really blew my mind was that it, the late that Paul I saw predicts that the Labour will gain the Isle of Wight, the Isle of Wight, the 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 spiritual home of nineteen fifty seven. Actually, Labour did win the Isle of Wight, I think, in 1997. Wow. Yeah, oh. that, that, wouldn't, that, wouldn't, that would be extremely rare, but it wouldn't be unprecedented. Wow. But uh, other than that, I'm having a lovely time with polling. <laughs> so, to the thing, Luke, I think this, this toy government did have some ideological coherence. And the markets basically mitterons them. And yeah, now... but the, 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 the thing is, the thing is, well, if you're going to call it a right wing government, how do you explain like this massive, huge, see it from space intervention no. in the energy market? By by the way, Luke, they didn't they didn't win Isle of Wight in uh, '97. Toys still hold it. Are you sure? I'm sure the to- I'm sure. Did, did, did what happened to 2001? Because there were those, there were a couple of really weird seats that the Tories yeah, did, lost did, in 2001. Yeah, no. I, it might have been 2001, but they definitely no. lost the Isle of Wight at some point. Okay, I'm, I've got it up here. Was it the Lib Dems that won it in 97? It might have no, been. No, no, it's been Tory... Since 19, no, 1997, yes. The Liberal yeah, Democrats Lib Dems, won Lib Dems the Isle of Wight. And then Tories gained it back. And then Tories gained it back in, in, in 2001. But, wow. But I mean, that's the the, the real that's the reality of like this. I think is indicative. Like, I think Ed Davey has been a sort of. I I thought Ed Davey was going to be a largely effective leader of the Lib Dems, but like they're not they're not coming back, guys. It's not it's not gonna ha- it's not you stop trying to make fe- fetch Ed Davey for prime minister happen. It's not you know he's. You know, they should be, they'll, they'll gain some more seats. I think they'll probably double their representation up to the low 20s. But yeah, they're not going to have, they're not going to be in a position to gain Isle of Wight or, you know. I don't, don't rule it out yet, Simon. I can see it happening. I mean, anyway. So, so, yeah, so the point I'm to make is like, they, they did have a ideological approach, which was Reaganism. We, we are going to cut taxes we are not going to worry about uh pay force uh for our tax cuts because we are going to unleash the dynamism of the british people through tax cuts and we're going to make ourselves more attractive to entrepreneurs and businessmen by cutting business taxes and if it all goes horribly wrong oh well labor can put up taxes in two years time and this, that's the only way to make sense of everything that they were talking about when they came in. You know, that's how they are a break with what Osborne was doing, and they are overturning a third a thirty year consensus because effectively, you know, we have had a consensus that as we've had, they say thirty years because they don't say anything mean about mummy, 
but like this has been a consensus since 72 that actually know, it's been it's been a consensus for about the past 100 years well honest. yeah but but obviously barber broke it which is you know you don't increase borrowing to pay for tax cuts that'd be a bad idea um so you they've been forced to abandon that or, or they've been forced to try and abandon it. And that, that that is where they are now becoming completely incoherent because there is this thing of, okay, we have to cut taxes. They have, they've U-turned on the 45p tax, tax cuts, but that's only 2 billion. It's not actually that big a deal. Um, so they've got to find billions and billions to ensure that when they release the OBR forecasts, it doesn't show the deficit just getting completely out of control. And they can't find any. There, there isn't anything to cut because they, you know, A, A because cuts take time to actually make. And B, they have no ideas how to cut because Osborne did all the easy stuff, quote unquote easy stuff. And they don't want to put up taxes. Um, because that's you know they're they're wedded to to be in the tax cutters, and so this is a thing. Like I'm sure we're gonna have, we might end up, we might have a couple of weeks where it feels like things are stabilising for the Tories because you know they're back in Parliament. You know they, they'll probably get a national insurance cut through next week because Labour supports it. You know it will feel like they're getting the legs under their feet. But the Bank of England is going to have to is going to stop its emergency buying program, and you know our, you know, the sale of the price of government debt is still volatile, and at some point they're going to have to say how they intend to reduce the deficit. But like this, this like this is it. Like I, like I said, they've been mitterrand. It doesn't matter what happens now. It doesn't matter whether Liz Trust somehow scrambles and wins the next election. Their, which I don't think is going to happen, um, their kind of ideological move, their bid to change the contours of the British economy of British politics has already blown up. The idea was is that we wouldn't do this having to balance tax cuts with, with spending cuts, um, that we were going to use tax cuts to fuel growth and, you know, you know race, race along to utopia on the Laffer curve. And it's not going to happen. You know, the tre- treasury brain has won. You know, they've. I mean, this is one of the things that annoys me is that at a different time, I'd be all for growing the deficit because I think the deficit's a you know, at, no, done rightly for the right reasons at the right time. Expanding the deficit, deliberately expanding the deficit, is a perfectly valid economic management tool. Um, no government's ever dare going to do that ever again, given the mess they've made. Well, certainly not for another 50 years. Um, because, you know, every, you know, you just see it now, the, you know, the permanent secretary to the Treasury going, now, do you not remember what happened when that, when mad old Liz Truss and crazy quasi try to do this in 2022. Yeah, they're, 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 go, they're, going to be, they're going to become they're going to become like the Treasury's fairy tale, aren't they? Now, Chancellor, yeah. you be good, or quasi-quitag will come and get you. So, 
So yes, like like it, it is now an incoherent mess. But um, but I mean, just to, just to back up a bit, it was always an incoherent mess because no Reaganite administration would ever spend what this government was going to spend in an intervention in the energy markets. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think because this is the thing, like, and I think this is where the likes of um, I, I actually met our our friend Lewis. Um, I, I had drinks with him on Sunday. Um, I think this is what they sometimes miss in the sense of it was a range of things that caused the markets to freak out, and they probably did overreact to a certain extent. But you can understand the overreaction because you had. You had the pledge of thirty billion unfunded tax cuts, and we always have to remember, like they did not begin as unfunded tax cuts. They thought there was going to be thirty billion pounds of excess money due to inflation having meant basically as wages have grown, more people are paying more taxes, obviously, and so they no they thought you know trust and the brain trust around her. They thought they were going to have more to this thirty billion pounds to spend due to higher tax receipts. I told people at the time, like I know, talking to people on Twitter, that's insane because the government will also no the reason no if employers are raising raising wages, the government's going to have to raise wages. If 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 the private sector is, is spending more on key goods. The government's going to have to spend more on key goods, um, particularly in the context of things like, say, the army, where like a lot of what the armed forces spend their money on is fungible goods that will track, you know, domestic inflation. Um, so anyway, they thought they had this thirty billion. They didn't, but they're still going to go ahead with the tax cuts. Um, so a, you have the thirty billion of pre-announced tax cuts. Eh, maybe not that big a deal. Then you have the fact that, despite what she said, they did do. They were going to make an intervention in the energy market. They then do an energy intervention that is bigger and longer than Labour's, and has no pay force. Like not even like Labour's hokey pretend pay force. Like just no attempt at pay force. Then you have the Bank of England. Uh, wussing out of a, uh, a 0.75 interest rate hike and only going for 0.5 and even having people saying it should have been as low as 0.25 of an increase um, that, that call, called into question how robust the Bank of England was and actually tackling inflation. Then you had the bizarre budget where not only do you have the £30 billion of pre-announced tax cuts you, that were made during the leadership election, you have the stamp duty uh, tax cut that was trailed in the week leading up to it. You have this weird grab bag of reducing, spit of, of reducing duties. And you have bringing forward the income tax cut, the corporate uh, and the um, and abolishing the 45p tax ban. And then you have the Quasical <laughs> Tang and other people briefing like mad that they're only just getting started and there'll be even more tax cuts to come and they want to do all these things to make the tax the, the tax system better and people pay lower taxes 
and at that point, people just completely freak out. And I was like, I forgot to include in there, not letting the OBR publish any forecasts or commit to any um, uh, uh, fiscal rules. Because you have to remember, like, there was arguments during conference about whether the uh, the mid the fiscal strategy, midterm fiscal strategy, would be announced in on the twenty third of November in October. That was originally meant to be done next year. In the budget, it was like we'll announce our medium term fiscal strategy in the new year. So, like, even November was brought forward to try and calm the markets. So you've had all these things put together. And that's what caused the markets to freak out. And I don't think the Tories understand that. Like you see it, like Quatong did a, a an event with the IEA. And like he was saying stuff about America that was just not true. But but the, the first of his thing was, it's like, you know, what, why is it that the markets don't freak out when Biden borrows to spend? It's like, you are borrowing to spend. You, Quasi, you're doing that. You're doing it by tens of billions of pounds. Like, it's like, it's like they feel that the energy announcement, the energy subsidy announcement, the biggest intervention that any British government has made into the private into the private sector is something that other people did because deep down they don't want to do it and the meanies in the press and on the back benches um, forced them to do it. Sorry, I ranted. Somebody else talk. Yeah, well, the, 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 other thing, the other thing I'd add to that from the IAE um, is that, and this is some, this is something that, that this is a, um, this is a brain worm that not only, that doesn't just affect um, the current government. This is, this is something that like, this is because, again, it's because, it's because British politics is way too interested, British politicians are way too interested in American political and economic history. They don't, British politicians don't reckon with a very simple fact. The reason why the US can borrow enormous, enormous sums of money and really not have to worry about it is that the, the, is that the dollar is the anchor currency of the entire global economy. Therefore, particularly, ironically, countries like China have until very recently and to a large extent still do, they have an interest in propping up the value of the dollar or at least holding the value of the dollar steady. Now, the pound is some, is still something of a reserve currency, but it is not the basis of international trade. I, Therefore, you simply do not have either the breadth, sorry, either the breadth or depth of goodwill that the U.S. Treasury has when it borrows hundreds of billions of hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and like you, you can tell, like the, China, the Chinese, and before the invasion of Ukraine, the Russians, but also um, developing nations like India, Brazil, um, South Africa, um, the OPEC nations. They have been looking for ages and that they haven't found anything and they're unlikely to find anything in the near future to replace the dollar as a medium of international exchange because it really pisses the developing world off that they have to basically subsidize this massive US 
um, budget deficit in order to in order to maintain the stability of their own trading of their own international no trading networks. The idea that the Bank of England and the British government is going to be treated analogously to the US federal government really is like the ultimate example of brain worms. I would slightly push back on that being an explanation why the Americans can do it. A, because they're not. I mean, like, this is one of the things that I think a lot of people in British politics are interested in it, but like, they're not interested enough to get the facts right in a weird way. So, like, the, like the Americans are undergoing fiscal contraction now. Like, because, like, Quatang was talking as if they're still undergoing fiscal expansion. It's just not true. Like, they are um, a lot of... Biden, no, the Biden's first uh, reconciliation, reconciliation act, uh, the, emer- like the COVID emergency package last year. Look, in retrospect, it was too too big. Um, and I think I think most people now accept that it was too big and it's had a negative impact on inflation. But like a lot of its provisions were temporary and so are kind of going through the system. So, you know, like the expansion, no, like the child tax credit, that's not been renewed. Um, the COVID relief for states, you know, like the states are still spending it because, you know, America, the American system's kludgy and it takes a while, but they're not getting another round. The stimulus checks were a one-off thing that aren't being repeated. So, like, when, for Quatang to say America's still undergoing um, fiscal expansion is just wrong. You know, the second Reconciliation Act Biden passed, the IRA, um, you know, that actually, you know, it's the Inflation Reduction Act. It's actually, it is actually in the long term going to reduce the deficit. And it is, you know, it is, it has more than paid for. You know, it, no, everything, everything it's spending is paid for by either spending cuts or tax rises. And there's, there is stuff left over to close the deficit. So like the Americans, because like Kratang was basically saying, like, why do people not say that Biden's undermining the Fed? Well, it's like when Biden was going for fiscal expansion was when the Fed thought inflation was uh, a transition, uh, tran- was transitory, temporary, and wouldn't be a problem that had to be dealt with by interest rate hikes. As the Fed has realized that that was wrong, uh, you know, the mood in Washington has also changed to, to towards a fiscal contraction. To me, the big reason, so, uh, and, and then like these cuts are ginormous. Like, I think one of the things you always have to remember with when you look at American bills, and it's a really easy thing to forget, is because they almost always are, are being passed through reconciliation, the big bills. They, they do tend to be talked about in terms of their 10-year cost, which means things get double counted. So you, you, you look at um, what the government wanted to do. Like, so say their £30 billion, pound, the, what is it, the £45 billion pounds worth of tax cuts? In American standards... That would have been talked about as four hundred and fifty billion pounds worth of tax cuts. Because you'd have done the ten year, you'd have done how much it costs for ten years. Now, four hundred. So what? That'd be what six hundred billion dollars, six hundred and fifty billion dollars. 
even for the Americans, that's a lot of money. <laughs> like, like I, I can't remember how much the uh, the Trump tax cuts cost. Um, I think they were like, I think they were approaching a trillion. Uh, but like six hundred. Well, you know what they, you know what they say. Well, trillion dollars here, trillion dollars there. Sooner or later, other real money. And then you add in the energy subsidies as well. This is a big package by American standards, and I'm not sure people wouldn't freak out if the Americans tried to do something like this. You then just have the fact that the Americans are more self-sufficient than we are. You know, they eat most of their own food. They they are they are a net exporter of energy. Yada 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 yada. You know, like actually, yeah. they are I mean, just they are just less vulnerable to fluctuations in their currency because they are more self-sufficient. I mean, I think I think there's some truth in what you're saying, but I think there's also a lot of truth in what I was saying. That basically America can afford to run bigger deficits for longer than just about yeah. anybody else. But anyway, Simon, you haven't said anything for a while. So have you got thoughts? Um, no, I, I, I think you've, you know, you covered it a lot. Like I think that there's this desire to consult, you know, there is a weird desire to look at America as, you know, the same as us. And 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 we're just not. We've got to, you know, and 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 yeah, a lot a lot of people grew up either watching the West Wing or, you know, fanboying President Reagan and they think they can be the same country. And it's just, we're not the same, you know, we're not the same. We shouldn't Yeah, I've got, I've, got, the... I've got to say, much as I much as I enjoy the West Wing and much as I know you enjoy the West Wing, Simon, although Will doesn't like it at all. Nope. I think he has done quite a lot of damage to British politics, weirdly. The um I, th- I think I, I it's Sorry, difficult. Simon, Simon, do you want to do you want to? No, back? I, I I agree. It's it's terrible, isn't it? It's like you know the worst the thing the things that you love the things that I I love so many of the things that I I've genuinely enjoyed are probably the things that have destroyed. The other one being Twitter, a thing I really enjoy <laughs> that is probably on balance destroyed any democracy for the world, made democracy much much worse. The um, <laughs> the thing I would say is like. I think you can look. Obviously, you have to be aware that we're different to America for all sorts of reasons. Not least the fact that our government can just move much faster. So, like a lot of the stuff American politicians do is just because their system is so kludgy, and it's actually quite difficult to do things directly. Um, um, the but I do think you you can go too far and say there's nothing to learn from America because the thing with America is. It is such a big, well-resourced country that it, there is just a lot more written about American politics. There's a lot more ideas and history and research being done. So I think you can learn stuff. I think one of the really interesting things is, is like, did the Reagan Revolution happen in America? So I don't know if you've seen any of this stuff, uh, guys, but like, there has been some evidence that the, re- the real reason America had such a good 80s was women entering the job market. Like, you basically just had a massive expansion of labour supply as women stopped being full-time homemakers. And that allowed... No, it allowed for, you know, reduced wage inflation because you had more workers. It allowed for increased production. And that was actually a big part of, of addressing 
some of the uh, you know supply crunches that was hurting the American economy in the seventies after it got an over overstimulated, and I think this brings me to my point, which, is, which I really think is where this government has gone wrong. You know, ignoring like the competency side of things. It's like the issue isn't lack of growth, like that time. The immediate issue is a lack of growth. Like that is, if you look at the medium term or the long term, that is the issue Britain is facing. But actually, at the moment, Britain has more growth than it can handle, which is why it, at the moment it's dealing with price and wage inflation. Before that, this, it was dealing with asset inflation, i.e. house prices going up. What a, no, if you want to be truly pro-growth, it's not going for growth now through tax cuts or spending increases or whatever. It's capacity. How do we how do we expand the capacity of this economy so that it can handle more growth? And then, you know, if you are a small state conservative like this government is, you then turn around and say, "Is after ask? No, we're going to do this to grow capacity when that." enhanced capacity capacity is rewarded with greater economic growth those proceeds of growth will go towards tax cuts um um which you know if you squint is you can argue the way round thatcher did it in um in the 80s um and so like part of that i think will be investments in okay we have got a huge proportion and a growing proportion of our country that are economically inactive due to ill health, how do we get those people working again? Um, how do we you know, grow the infrastructure so the infrastructure can handle more economic activity? How do we build more houses so that more people can work and live in the economically productive areas? You know, a lot of the issues with British growth would be solved overnight if London was twice the size. Um, because there's all sorts of benefits in terms of increased productivity to people living and working in London. Now, these are the questions the Tories should be thinking of. And the problem with these questions, and again, actually, you know, energy as well. Now, how do we get it so we have energy that is cheap, reliable um, and secure? These are the questions the Tories should be grappling with. And what they all have in common is they can't be solved with a tax cut because these are actually collective action problems. These are things where you know, there may be issues related to deregulation, but a lot of it is you're going to need the government to actually put some investment in and get things started and get projects moving. And you can just tell that's not the way these guys' brains work. Like, they just feel... The state must get out of the way and then problems will be solved. But like take that, take the housing market. It's like, okay, you can you can deregulate and you can say you can build on this land. But it's not actually in the interests of most developers for the value of houses to plummet. Um, you know, it's actually interest of developers to uh, build at, at a slow but steady pace. So houses retain their value as an asset. You know, if you really want to build enough, you know, housing units to make a difference um, to to the value of of housing, 
that probably does need a government to to act as a developer in certain parts of the country and to provide sea funding for big developments, maybe even to to build some social housing in certain areas. I just don't think they have the imagination or the willingness to try stuff like that. Yeah, it's. I think what this always almost says to me, and it's not like this is, is that there is not, that basically that this is why governments at the end of the day run out of road because, you know, we've tried, yeah, we've tried sort of this conservative approach, and there's need need for a, for a different approach. And I know, you know, obviously, ironically, conservative governments through COVID and through the energy price crisis have, you know have ended up spending a lot of money but they've also but yeah that's not been their ideological position and there's just a need for a change of sort of ideological position i suppose and the disaster is going to be is that because they are grasping anything to cut um to uh get the deficit under control they're probably going to cut a bunch of capital spending because, as with Boy, as with George Osborne when he came in, mm-hmm. it's often the easiest thing to cut. Um, what are your thoughts, Luke? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really, I don't really, I don't really disagree. I don't really disagree. Um, I don't really disagree with any of that. Um, I think the 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 more interest, the more interesting. Um, the more interesting short-term question is, you know, what on earth does the Chancellor do on the 23rd of October? Because for reasons you've explained, Will, he is in Box Canyon. There, there are literally, not only are there no good choices, but all the choices open to him seem equally bad in different ways. What's the um, what's the name in chess for the move, the position where if you move you're gonna check checkmate yourself? Yeah, you're in, you're in check. No, no, it's um, there's a name in 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 um chess where you're not in check, but it's your turn to move, and if you move, you're gonna checkmate yourself. Yeah, I I don't. Is know. that Zug, Is that That's the one. That's the one. That's yeah, basically I, what's happened. They they probably are okay. They do nothing, but they have to do something. And this is and this is the thing, because there are all sorts of noises off stage about replacing Liz Truss. And I think I I think if this if this polling keeps up for another couple of months, that that will happen. You know, um, because the thing is. You know, people say that John Major led the Tories into the election in 1997, and that's perfectly true. But there are two big differences between John Major and Liz Truss. Firstly, John Major was consistently more popular than his party, so you could always make the you could always make the quite valid argument that if you got rid of John Major and replaced him like some with somebody like John Redwood, things would be even worse. And second, the economy was doing reasonably well. So there was always the there was always the hope that if you just stuck it out for a bit longer, people would eventually see this. Now we know that didn't happen. 
But I also think, but, sorry, I, I think there's another first thing just before you continue. Yeah. I think, there's, I think yeah. there's a third thing. People didn't think this that size of defeat could happen. Yes. Like, because of 92, because you just, like, even Thatcher at her imperial pomp only got, like, a 100-seat majority over Labour, or and 44-seat majority, and that's when Labour had divided in two, officially. Um, I, I think even going into that election in 97, both sides for you might get a Labour majority of, like, 60-70. And, like, and like, that wasn't, like them being unduly modest because like you know like a lot of like what Labour was planning was based on the idea that they would do like these disalliance with the Lib Dems and like maybe even Paddy Ashdown would join the cabinet and then when you know when they was when they got such a big majority all that all that stuff went out of the window it would, have, it would have just looked ridiculous. Um and I think because 97 happened and to a lesser extent because 2010 happened yeah. I think people are much more aware of the fact, no, actually, you can lose a lot of seats in one night, and we can't assume that yeah. if we lose, we only lose by 40. Yeah, so the, the, so the thing is, if this keeps up for another two, three months, the Conservative Party will find a way to move against Liz Trust. No question of that, I don't think. No question of that in my mind, anyway. Um, but the pro- but the problem is this this fiscal event this never has a thing been more inaccurately titled than a mini budget because there was nothing mini about this as we've talked about at length. But the, this this thing has happened now, and it can't be, and it won't be un- it won't ne- it won't necessarily be it can't be entirely undone by a change of leadership. So let's say Prime Minister Rishi Sunak comes into office in January 2023, for the sake of argument. That Rishi Sunak assuming office then is a very different proposition to Rishi Sunak assuming office in September 2022. He will be, I mean, in, to some extent, just with it being a different person, that will reassure the markets to some extent. But the depth to which the markets have been spooked and the consequences that flow from that mean that whoever is in number 10 and whoever is number 11 is going to be faced with a fairly appalling set of choices. And the thing is, assuming Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves, uh, you know, win in early 2025, their choices aren't going to be a whole hell of a lot better. I think... I thought there's a chance they could deal Sunak in and it, he'd be in a bare position and he would have been in September because this has clearly not worked. It's a disaster. If 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 the toy party could just grow up and realise that the gruel Sunak was giving them was as good as it was going to get, um, then, you know, he would get to define himself against Liz Truss rather than just be continuity Boris Johnson. Um, you know, he could he would have a more pliant party as he ran the economy as he would like, you know, blah 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 blah. But I think what this party conference showed is that you know, I was a fool to think you could shame or inform the hard right of the Tory party, yeah. That, that's the that's the thing, but there is now a call 
of headbangers who want their tax cut and they want it now. And you can't tell them that they can't have their tax cut because Quasi and Liz were willing to give it to them. Um, 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 I like... Like that, like I mean, again, I think like you know, I saw Stephen Bush make the say uh, make the same joke, but like Braverman having like such a prominent profile during this conference and being received so well from the platform, yeah, that's the type of thing that may give this trust an extra six months because um, I think if if the Tory Party were unpopular with this trust as Prime Minister, I. I can't think how bad they it could get for them if Braverman somehow emerged as leader. Yeah, but the, the thing is, she won't because there won't be a contest. It will be a Michael Howard type situation. Well, I don't. I mean, this is what I thought. Right, the sense I get from listening to people, you know, on the ground is that the reality was that by two thousand and three. The Conservatives were so tired of being out of government, there was a unity which was like everyone can kind of accept Michael Howard. But I think the problem the Conservative Party has now is that, as you say, there's the headbangers on the on the right who want who would basically, you know, want tax cuts no matter what. There are other people the basically the, the the anyone who supported Sunak probably thinks that the people who supported Truss are morons, which you know is kind of being proven true. Um and they I think there's a real. I think there's a real risk that there wouldn't be. Who would the unity candidate be? I think. I think. The, I think that's the other thing as well. Is like Howard was old. Howard was unideological. Like he wasn't a modernizer. He wasn't an anti-modernizer. You know, like he 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 was retired. Like he he he'd been fired from the shadow cabinet by Hague in like '99, and was brought back in a very odd move by IDS, be shadow chancellor was really good as Shadow Chancellor. And it was like, okay, you can be caretakers. Like, no one thought the Tory party was going to win in 2005 or 2006, but they thought there was a real danger. Like, the party could implode, no, fall behind the Lib Dems or be so far behind Labour they wouldn't have a chance in 2010. So, like, he was... I mean, the comparison I was used at the time would be like uh, your football team bringing in Ron Atkinson to try and help you avoid relegation. Like, yeah, it's, it's, big, it's, big, big Sam or Sean Dyche would be the modern. Yeah, it, yeah. You know, it's Red Adair type type moments, uh, and and the problem you have now is all right, Grandpa Red Adair. What is what people said at the time? Um, okay, I, I remember. Okay, okay I, Boomer. The 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 first um the first journalist I heard float the idea of Michael Howard being crowned was Michael Brown of the Independent, former Tory MP turned sketch writer. And I thought it made complete sense. And I and I remember, you know, as you do, as I still do, taking that idea as my own and saying, Well, I've heard from this journalist that you know, this is what's gonna happen, and I think it's what's gonna happen. And I remember my form teacher at the time thought I was an absolute lunatic for suggesting this and that there was no way this would ever happen. And, uh, yeah, I was quite smug the day after when it did happen. Okay, we've got about another 10 minutes. Are there any last points that people want to make? Uh, I have one, but do you want to go first, Simon? No, no, I I don't think so. Uh, I'm... 
I mean, I think the, the the really fun thing is, so like Liz Truss is trying to define her government as against the anti-growth coalition, which, by the way, someone really needs to have a word for John Sopel. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if you saw this, Simon, and I think I, I think I, I, I moaned to Luke about this offline. John Sopel had this thing about how, you know, this toy party conference reminds him about, uh, reminds him of Trump rallies. And it's like, the party has had a nervous breakdown for the past three days. How on earth yeah. does this compare to like the pulsating id of American conservatism in 2016? Grow up. Politicians are allowed to say mean things about the press. Um, um, you know, every politician has in time memorial. Um, 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 the, the stuff on immigration, I think, is really interesting because I, I think I think you can start to see how this this actually blows up into full like, full blown warfare, and maybe you can't put together a Tory government again. Um, um, maybe even if you do get a Sunak or Chaps or Coffee uh, led government to replace Truss. They are kind of stuck, and maybe they are relying on labor to get like unpopular things through, because you know, tr- no, Braverman's going around saying, you no, know, she's you know she's loyal to this trust. The people who forced her to abandon the forty-five p tax cut committed a coup, but like Braverman's going around saying, um, we want more restrictions on immigration, including not allowing people on student visas to bring dependents over. Good job, <laughs> good job getting people to come and do PhDs or postdocs uh, with that uh, um, criteria. Um, but also actually opposing the um, British India free trade deal which the government is desperate to get done by Diwali. Uh, well, sorry, by the, by the government, I mean, Liz Truss is desperate to get done by Diwali. And the Indians are pushing quite hard for quite liberal uh, um, immigration uh, provisions, not helped by the fact that a lot of the stuff that you would normally be able to offer, we've you know, actually done based through our points-based system. So... You know, this government wants to say we're growth, we're about growth. Anybody opposes us is the anti-growth coalition. Well, they've got an almost almighty battle to get any immigration liberalization through. You look at the stuff that's emerging about these investment zones and how the various um, uh, animal huggers and tree huggers are mobilizing, saying that they're a way of destroying precious natural habitats such as you know car parks with weeds in them um you can see they're not going to get going with a lot of tory mps on on the side of the anti-growth coalition like it's it's i just don't see (laughs) just don't see what they can do I, i i i i i've never seen a government more hold in the under the water stuck in the mire um, and so quickly, like, again, we, we should say she's only been in post for a month. This should have been a celebration. This should have been, whoa, look, I'm Liz. I'm ready for government. Ha, suck you, losers. I'm prime minister. Instead, it's awake. 
But I think the thing that's in, the thing that's interesting about that. Sorry, I, I said I didn't have anything to say, but I just no. Is that like maybe if Boris Johnson hadn't spent the last six months to a year of his premiership basically going me breaking the law was a okay, and then trying to you know. Uh, all of the other stuff, maybe all, maybe the sort of sense that the Conservative Party is dead in the water would have come out earlier. Except we were all distracted by the shiny shininess of Partygate and related, you know. No, I think no, I think that I think that's I think that's wrong, Simon. Because th- th- this is this is the thing underneath the underneath all the um, underneath all the 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 chronic personal in this. Is, this is the this is the weird thing about Boris Johnson, like in terms of his personal behaviour and the personal behaviour of the people around him, that government was a shit show, but it was actually following quite a thought through, quite a, a quite a consistent um, set of economic set of economic um, policies that you can agree or disagree with, but they had a hell of a lot more coherence. Mm. Um, the what's come after them, and th- this is th- this is the thing. When you get when you get like the inevitable Anthony Seldon Boris at ten book, or when you get other like, you know the books looking back on Boris Johnson, there's going to be this really sharp um, dichotomy of the period coming out of the worst of COVID, where the government is actually doing quite a lot of reasonably sensible things, but it's just overwhelmed by the the perfidy of the man at the top. And it's like it's like the the, the Tory party is going through the different flavours of disaster. We've had corruption. Now we've just got rampant stupidity. Well, this is a well, I think there's plenty of stupidity in the Johnson, but I think, uh, yeah, it's elementary. Yeah. Um, um, well, this is like this is the point I keep banging on about. It's like the health and social care levy was popular. The um, the the Tory Party was still leading the polls like eleven months ago, and it seemed like Labour was kind of a bit stuck in terms of how to oppose this quite centrist Tory Party. And like this is been, like whenever you say that. Johnson was on the left of the Tory party or his government was quite centrist. It breaks people's brains because of Brexit and some of the unpleasant culture war stuff he would do. But yeah, on the economic stuff, like he clearly was a centrist. He clearly was on the left of the Tory party, which was basically, you know, we want, we want low taxes, we want lower taxes because of course they do, they're Tories. Um, But we recognise that that has to be balanced by keeping the, keeping borrowing down. But also, this is where he was different to Cameron and Osborne, uh, maintaining a high quality public public services. Um, and I've, I mean, and this is why you know, like this is why they are so loathed to get rid of him because I, I think you know a Boris Johnson who could behave himself would be a fearsome, unbeatable prime minister. Did what the boys? Yeah, but that, but that, but that, but that's yeah, not. Yeah. that boys Johnson doesn't exist. Yeah. The one that did exist was still pretty formidable, um, but was always going to be undone because he just, just couldn't do the job of being prime minister. But all like all his position and all his political instincts 
were very strong. And the other thing, and this is where I like, I, I do wonder if you do like what happens if they get rid of trust and put a more centrist person in. Because the one thing Johnson could also do is keep keep the right on his side. Like he got the right to swallow their gruel to a remarkable extent. Um, now, it has to be said, like, one of the really interesting things is doesn't seem like the Johnsonites are very happy with Les Trust either. Like no. Dean Doris has been going going off at some all week. Jake Jacobs, no, we're going through this weird period where it seemed like Team Trust were constantly briefing against Jacob Reese Mark. We now seem to be in a period where Jacob Reese Mark is constantly briefing against Les Trust. And by the way, my oh my gosh, they're making him look the same reasonable one. <laughs> Um, yeah, there is just one final, final point I would make. You know, if you're Labour looking at these polls, you've got to be ecstatic. But the one thing you ought to bear in mind is, the reason you are scoring this well is because Liz Truss is powerfully unpopular. Like, radioactively unpopular. It's not because people have gone, oh, you know that Keir Starmer, he's brilliant, he's great, he's fantastic. Look at the sheer charm, charisma and intellect of Keir Starmer. It's just put next to Liz Truss, she looks sensible. Well, well, also, like, toy governance is breaking down and it's not working. I mean, because you all remember, like, the reason why they have hit these astronomical heights is because they were already leading by 10 points before Liz Truss crossed the road to punch us all in the face. I mean, I think the one thing I would say, and I, I, I don't see how the Tory party gets ahead of, out of this. This winter was, all, was already going to be very difficult. Um, you know, interest rates were going to have to rise anyway, um, partially because the government's been asleep at the wheel for the past year. Um, it is possible they would have gotten away with blaming the Bank of England for the interest rate rises. But no one will believe that now. Like everyone believe, like and like t- to almost an unfair extent. Like they've made the situation worse, and interest rates will go higher than they should. They should have, but like they were going to go up, and they should have gone up. But like people are going to associate this stuff with what Liz Truss did. It's like it's like what happened with Brexit. A load of stuff that had nothing to do with Brexit was blamed on Brexit because Brexit was a big thing that happened. And so everything good or bad that happened around that time tended to get associated uh, with Brexit, depending on whether you were for or against it. This government made such a big song and dance about taking the taking the economy by the scruff of its neck. It's like, yeah, but it's a crap economy and it's going to get worse. And this is a really scary thing. You know, it's not winter yet. So we've not people haven't had their new expensive uh, energy bills through, which will be more than last year, even with the subsidies. We've not, you know, it still looks like we'll get away with no sh- uh, shortages during the winter, but like the government isn't doing anything to help with that, and there is a real danger that there are shortages, and if there are shortages, Liz Truss is going to be fucked. A because she's resisting this. Uh, energy efficiency campaign Jacob Reese Moggs wants to run, but also because she was the she was the minister that got rid of our energy stores um back in back in the back in the late tens. 
Um, so, like, she will be held personally responsible for any blackouts that happen. Um, I mean, I I do not. I'm I'm sorry. Sorry. I, I know I said I was done, and now I'm I've interrupted yet again. But like, I do not understand what the the ideological issue with the government or launching an advertising. I mean, maybe it's just that I am, you know, a a, a government lackey type. But it seems to me that it seems to me that you know, having a campaign that tells people how to save money, how to save their energy costs would be something people would really welcome right now. You've got yeah, the one the one thing I the one thing I would say so, say to that, Simon, is you've got to be really careful how you do that. Because like government information films land very differently to different audiences and what you don't want to, what you don't want to do. What you don't want to do is frighten people who need to put the heating on into not putting the heating but on. Th- that oddly is what oddly that is exactly what I said in terms of, you know, I was talking, you know, I was, I was on Twitter inevitably, and I was like, you know, actually, there's a rip there are going to be some people who do too much of this, who, you know, um, who 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 you know will be sitting in the dark and won't put the telly on for four months, which are things that use almost no energy. And also, yeah, it could there could be a way of going like you know, he, here's a way of you know, if you only heat one room, you can look after yourself. In the you know, there are ways to make this actually ensure that people look after themselves rather than through fear. You know, sit in a freezing cold, dark house basically killing themselves and this is when they, i mean apparently i apparently like the department of health have raised the issue loops raised which i think like simon says i think you can it's like cal- when you're trying to do like a calorie restriction diet which i'm trying to do at the moment there are like there's a lot of like um common sense things that people do which are actually stupid so like you could like everybody knows like eating a pizza is bad for you but you know, you might go to McDonald's. And, you know, okay, okay. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm trying to be good, so I'll have a fillet of fish rather than a Big Mac. Well, actually, fillet of fish has has basically <laughs> as many calories as a Big Mac. <laughs> you know, like like, but, Dad, uh, but just rub it, rub it on the, rub it on the window. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or I'll go and have a Subway. Subways are healthier than a yeah. McDonald's. Ooh. Nope. Um, and like, it's that type of stuff the government can be doing for people. You know, um. And, and helping them with that. Um, so I, I think you can get around. No, a very true objection that you don't want, like, people dying because they've not put their heating on. But it's like, apparently, like, this just, it's just like, oh, this is a nanny state. This is interfering people's lives. It's like, you're fucking paying for this energy woman. Like, like yes, like, if, if the government wasn't subsidising everyone's energy usage, and, like, at the very least, it would help if you actually explained what the policy was, and that it's not a cap, so nobody spends more, <laughs> nobody will spend more than £2,500 on their energy bill this quarter. Like, that would be a big hassle. That's <laughs> not, that's not true! That's my point. Yeah. Yeah, that's my point. Like, that's the thing, like, she keeps saying it, that's not actually what happens. So, like, yeah, it's, again, like, she's a zealot. She's, she's an yeah, ideologue. But the, thing, but, the, but the thing is, well, if I don't say anything, if I stay completely shut, maybe people will not will stop noticing I'm here, and then I won't get criticised. That does seem to be like Liz Truss's modus operandi. If I don't say something, I can't fuck up. 
anyway it's been a long few months i can feel it yeah anyway um i've been all calling he's been simon alvey and he's going to watch Notts county win i'm gonna listen to it on the radio i can't watch it although i will be able to in a couple of months because the national league is starting a proper streaming service i'm very much looking forward to this that'd be good but remember luke if it's giving you vertigo, stop watching. <laughs> it's not bye worth it, Luke. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs> I've got one to stop recording. There we go. <laughs>